Hello, and welcome to the Mic Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. Today, I'm joined by two special guests, Matthew Skelton and Manuel Page, authors of Team Topologies, organizing business and technology teams for fast flow. Matthew is head of consulting at Conflux, and Manuel is an independent IT and organizational design consultant and trainer focused on team interactions, continuous delivery practices, and accelerating the flow of work. It was great catching up with them to record this episode where we focus on their new book in depth, which discusses the different team structures we can use to support product innovation and value stream flow. Note that this podcast was recorded at the London Seacon conference at the end of last year, so you may also enjoy the background noise that will take you back to being at a physical conference. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm here at the Seacon conference in London. I've had the opportunity to bump into Manuel Page and Matthew Skelton, and I would just love to hear from the two of you about what's, what's been happening around Team Topologies. So great to be chatting. It's great to be here. Thank you. And the book was, there was a signing at the DevOps Enterprise Summit last week. There was a ton of interest in the book. I think a lot of organizations are out there and looking at trying to figure out how to really structure beyond just understanding what an agile team is, what a feature team is, and there's bits and pieces of people trying to cookie cutter the Spotify model. And I think <laughs> your book is providing a, a new perspective and just more thorough and deeper thinking around this. So if you could just give the listeners a summary of team topologies and the core ideas and really why you want them to get into the book. Sure. Perhaps just to add kind of the initial problem around reorganizing and, like you said, companies trying to be agile or be DevOps and they're reorganizing massive transformation projects and they don't always see the benefits. So one of the key ideas of Team Topology's book is to give the, the tools and the thinking around how do we become more of an organism, if you like, that is able to adapt to, to challenges rather than let's take the next big thing and do this massive transformation because that always takes a toll on, on people and motivation. Exactly. The book ends with a chapter that really talks about kind of the evolution of the organization. So the way in which the organization can begin to listen to signals inside the organization and outside the organization and adapt itself, adapt how teams interrelate and how, if you like, teams are structured in order to meet new business challenges. So the Teams Project model is very much about setting things up for learning, for adaptation, with an emphasis on, on a flow of change. And we go through lots of kind of different kind of principles and patterns and things that lay the groundwork, if you like, for enabling an organization to much better listen to signals around it and inside it so that it can adapt. So what have you seen as maybe the patterns and the anti-patterns of how teams are structured, how teams evolve, how restructurings are driven, usually top-down, I think? Just take me through some of what you've learned, some of the key concepts in the book. So in terms of teams, what ends up happening is you see many organizations, we look at teams as if they're all the same, especially within engineering. And that's not really true if you want to have a real focus on what is the, the value stream that they're trying to uh, address and, and bring value to. So some of the patterns we talk about in the book is thinking about the types of teams, because you have teams doing very different type of work. So we talk about stream-aligned teams, which are kind of your 
product team with end-to-end -end ownership of the life cycle. Because we know if we have teams that can build and operate their services, that's the fastest way to get feedback back into the product and, and really improve as quickly as possible. But then you need, realistically, you need other types of teams to help with that. Because the what we call the, what we talk about in terms of the team cognitive load, how much knowledge, skills, and tasks that they would need to do for this end-to-end -end ownership is too much for one team to grasp. So you need supporting types of teams. And that's where we talk about platform teams, uh, enabling teams, sometimes complicated subsystem teams. The starting point of the team and cognitive load is a very different starting point to how most organizations think about this stuff. So, some organizations are now doing this. There are some examples out there. For example, uh, Twilio, the cloud telecoms provider, explicitly uses cognitive load as a way to assess different, different sizes of bits of its software system. The number of these organizations is quite rare. It's quite rare to find that at the moment. A classic example, really, I suppose, is Amazon, AWS, who back in 2003, with their two pizza teams, a kind of really famous description of, of the size of the team, effectively were thinking about the cognitive load on the team by identifying a nice clear team boundary, a nice API around it. And so that clearly hasn't stopped AWS from scaling quite massively. But starting with, starting with this kind of unit of the team and deciding to limit the cognitive load on the team in different ways, through limiting the size of the, the software system or API or product that the team builds, combined with these additional teams like platform enabling and complicated subsystem as a way to make sure that this kind of socio-technical system that we're working in works effectively. As I said, some organizations have had this in mind for quite a long time. Most organizations have not done that. And so what we've tried to do is to pull together some of this thinking in a way which is easy for, for organizations to kind of get to grips with some patterns in this kind of space. And I've heard this reflected around your work around the book a lot, is that this actually modeling and thinking through this in terms of the cognitive load on a team, and in the end, realizing that teams maybe do need some specialization, is I think a really interesting approach. So one, what to me seems like anti-pattern that I've seen over the last couple of years talking to organizations is somehow, I think a lot of leaders have taken this two-pizza team approach and this whole feature team approach to think that a team can deliver end-to-end -end an entire product. You've got this 100% cross-functional team with all the specialization on it. Then what I see in practice is it's too complex, right? That team's not going to support its own data backends, its own APIs, its own front-ends. You actually end up with what Amazon's ended up with, which is dependencies between teams that are actually critical. So what's, I just wanted to take your view on this because one thing that in Project to Product that I stated based on some of my experience is, is that we need an organizational construct that's bigger than the team as well, right? That the product value stream, and in some cases, the product value stream can be one team, right? But oftentimes, you'll need a product value stream that's actually supported by multiple teams. And of course, some of those teams might actually be specialized. So you'll actually have an API team within a product value stream as well as a front-end team. Or you might actually have a product value stream that's a whole bunch of platform and API teams that support a number mm -hmm. of different teams and business customer-facing yeah. products. So what are your thoughts and what are your learnings in terms of team specialization. I think what's being recognized now that, that you do talk about is this need for platform teams and the like. What have you been learning about the dependencies between teams and how to manage those? That's a very good question. I think the dependencies between teams that we see in lots of organizations now are accidental. That's worth, worth saying in many cases. We haven't, lots of organizations have not designed 
the software architecture or the software systems architecture for flow. So they're not optimized for kind of a flow of change that, that is able to be handled by a single cross-functional team. So that's part of the problem is actually, if we want a rapid flow of change, we actually have to re-architect in an evolutionary way, but we have to kind of, we have to put the investment into enable that to happen. But you're right as well, we've got the concept of platforms and effectively we've got a kind of, if you imagine an onion, we've got a multi-layered kind of platforms or depending on who you're asking, you've got their perception of what their platform is will be different. So for example, if you've got some people who are delivering a mobile app that allows someone to book something online, their perception of what their platform is is different from the perception of some team that is working on a kind of back-end payment service, let's say that back-end payment service team will see their platform as consisting of something different, which is fine. The key thing is, at multiple levels of the organization, we have that kind of platform concept defined and managed as a product. So we're thinking about user experience. In this case, our users are typically other software development teams. So we're thinking about developer experience, we're thinking about how easy it is to operate this stuff. We've got a timeline, we've got some good documentation, we understand when particular versions of things are going to be deprecated. All the stuff about product management has been proven. User experience, all this kind of focus. But typically, a lot of people working on platforms traditionally were from a kind of sysadmin or infrastructure background and didn't have the awareness or skills around product management and modern kind of agile techniques and things. So we'd expect to see a kind of fractal or multi-level awareness of platforms, each one being managed as a product, if you like, so that the streamlined teams that depend on those platforms are able to be as effective as they can. And I think in terms of like this discussion between specialism, generalism, and cross-functional teams. I think, again, in a way, we're taking the wrong starting point about who should be in the team and, and these kind of questions. Because cross-functionality per se is not providing us value, I would say, if, if that's all we're focusing on. And instead, if we start with the team and try to understand this team, which is working for this value stream, what are the skills that they need, the capabilities that they need, so we start with that and understand, okay, what's the gap and what do they need to, to achieve? And then after that, we can think about what, in which ways can we get the team up to speed, if you like. Is it because they need to hire an expert on some specific technology or automation? Or is it that the platform should provide them this capability so they can go faster and not have to actually have the cognitive load of understanding some technology, some logging, some monitoring? What are the ways in which we can enable this kind of value stream aligned team to deliver the work in the best way? And typically that's going to end up with some cross-functionality and some kind of T-shaped people rather than very specialized. But that's not the starting point. The starting point is what do they need to achieve as a team? What are the gaps? And I think where we hope team topologies also helps by having these clear types of teams and interaction modes, kind of having a 10,000 feet view of which kind of teams do we have, how are they interacting, and what's the gap to where we need to be next. Okay, excellent. Tell me, what do you think in terms of, or what have you learned organizing teams of teams? That's a good question. What we've definitely seen is many organizations, most organizations probably, are not thinking in terms of multiple different levels, multiple different size levels inside the organization. We've got historical examples from companies like WL Gore, who make kind of the, the Gore-Tex waterproof fabric. For many years, when one of their offices exceeds 150 people in size, 
they will open a new office instead of scaling it beyond that, because this is Dunbar's number, right? Whether they knew about exactly that number or whether they're aware of that kind of trust boundary before, the key thing is there, it's clearly successful. That they're explicitly considering the kind of human, social kind of trust boundaries and the effects of, of that has on how well people work together. And so I think what we've seen from books like Team of Teams by Jim Stanley McChrystal is a great book. We're looking forward to interviewing someone who's got experience in the British Royal Marines Commando Unit. So we'll be speaking to him soon and we will have a blog post on that. So he's got direct military experience of this kind of stuff, which is great. But a lot of organisations are not thinking about this multi-level scaling. And I think that's a real, real problem. We were just talking to a friend of mine who's an engineering manager for a relatively new organisation selling stuff online. They grew from 30 to 60 people in the last year. And they're, guess what? They're having challenges because the kind of dynamics and trust and, and so on that, that worked fine before with about kind of 30 people no longer works at all. So it's really slowing down. And so I think we need some patterns for how organizations work as kind of team of teams, if you like, how, what that looks like, what kind of boundaries in terms of the numbers of people are we expecting to see in different kind of organizational units or different streams of value? And at what point do we have to start planning to identify a need to split that value stream, for example, if it, if it gets too big, too successful? This has been a fascinating topic for me because as I've been helping organizations deploy the flow framework, the focus is on, again, creating that operating level above that agile team layer, right? Because it's meant to be aligned to the business and then there's all this sort of consternation as well. How big should the value streams be? How many people and so on? So I had this long conversation with Dave West, who's now the CEO of Scrum.org. It was actually prior to writing Project to Product. And I said like, well, Dave, how big do you think Scrum should scale to? Dave said, well, look, SpaceX puts rockets into space and they're well under 100 people. I think you can solve every problem with less than 100 people. And he was saying it kind of flippantly, but we got to talking more and realizing that we just anecdotally did not have many proof points of effective software product value streams over Dunbar's number. Mm, interesting. Right? <laughs> All of Google search is kind of like WL Gore. They're stuck in one building that won't take many more people than actually mm. that maxes out before Dunbar's number from another story that Dave recounted to me. So. The scrum of scrums level, whatever we call it, I think what I've actually been saying is if you're over 10 teams there could on the product value streams, there could be a problem. So what's your reflection on that? Do you think that's right? Do you think that's so, wrong? So based on what I've, it I've read, it feels, feels right. It feels, feels about right to me. Yeah. This kind of thinking that we definitely need to start to bring to bear in organizations, like the evidence sort of suggests that 150, you know, that's pretty a limit on a certain kind of trust. Do we want to push that? Probably not, because we'll start to see some decay before then. We should expect once we get to about 100, 110 people, that's probably about the limit. And that's a useful constraint. It leads to, you know, beyond that limit, it immediately leads to lack of ownership as an individual within an organization feeling like what I'm deciding is or what I'm doing is now localized. And then that leads to local optimization as well. And this us versus them kind of mentality. So The advantage of what we ended up pulling together into the Team Topologies book is that so you might get to a point where your value stream has, let's say, 100 people in it. You think, oh, we're getting a little bit close to Dunbar's number. Well, actually, can we identify some stuff which we can push down into a platform? Can we identify some opportunity for some people to work in an enabling team? 
or potentially a complicated subsystem team, again, to reduce the cognitive load on the stream aligned teams and therefore potentially free up some capacity to be able to go faster and get more stuff out the door. It's not just about splitting the value stream at that point, it's potentially about doing some other stuff that improves the flow at the stream level because we've taken some cognitive load away from those people and they've got more capacity to focus on, on the kind of germane business relevant things. There's not immediately split it, but at some point, yes, you might have to get to the point where you decide to split it. Yeah, and Matthew, I think earlier you mentioned the interaction of the software architecture and then the team structure as well, right? Because I think we've got, in all of my experiences, and whether it's the Amazon stories or open source projects or startups I've worked with, just amazing things happen when the team structure, the software architecture, in the end, the product value streams, what you're delivering to your customers, are aligned, right? And that's obviously Amazon's one of the more interesting examples of that. As you said, you have to sort of incrementally change these, but I actually love this approach of actually tailoring that to cognitive load. You can't expect this one team to be expert in every part of your technology stack and then to bring in the new technologies that you're going to need and so on. So that cognitive load, the expertise that the team builds up over time, that I think in the right kind of organization and code base is actually evolving that code base to their expertise, right? It's, it's a feedback system with a software architecture. That's where I think you get that amazing flow at the team level, not just at the, mm -hmm. at the individual level. I've done some visualizations of past open source projects where you can actually see the software architecture evolve to match the team structure, which mm -hmm. is this fascinating thing. Mm -hmm. So I guess, what kind of guidance would you give for organizations to get to that state where they're taking your lessons learned on sort of structuring teams and then the division of labor, the really the dependencies between teams based on cognitive load, which I think is a great approach, but then making sure that the architecture is matching up. Because so often in these large enterprise organizations, there's all this frustration where you've got these new teams trying to work agile, but the software architecture is you know, this massive monolithic thing that 18 teams need to work on and can't get anything done. If you have, so there's this relationship between software architecture and the team structure called Conway's Law, so that there's a mirroring effect between the two, like you were talking about in your experience. If you have different people deciding on the two different things that are closely related, you might end up with HR or managers who are not technical having influence on the end software architecture indirectly by deciding the teams without these technical concerns. So I think Does that happen? Well, it, it effectively does, right? So if you got no, I'm kidding. The, the, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm concerned that's not the de facto mode for me. Yeah, yeah. This is the crazy thing. Like, so if you put in these terms, HR and, and non-technical managers are designing your systems architecture, do you yeah. really want that? It no, actually sounds no even way. crazier when you put it that way than I was already very concerned about. So, yeah. There's also cases, and that's why in today's talk, we try to focus on cognitive load and not on the architecture to start with. So. Because there are other dimensions, right? Even if you have great microservices architecture, it's all the rage and everything, we still come across many examples where, okay, we have microservices, we have teams aligned to microservices, and we still cannot deliver. Because actually, uh, the part that you said in the beginning that this has to deliver value to the customers was not really well thought out. So if you have, actually, the value is, is aligned to user personas or user journeys, and then Anytime we need to deliver value on that, we need to have dependencies between five, six, ten teams, each responsible for their microservice, then you still don't have a software architecture that's really powering value for the business. So it speaks to what you said this morning in your keynote. You've got to invest 
time and expertise and effort in understanding what your value streams are really because if you if you get this stuff wrong you'll be fighting against this this huge force and it's different in different organizations the same kind of organization could have very different kind of value stream structure to, to one that looks superficially similar the streams can be around business domains in a kind of ddd domain driven design type context but yeah it might be around user experience it might be on the, around the kind of a, a checkout flow for a user or something like this it depends it depends what you want to optimize for you optimize for that that particular kind of flow other kinds of flow aren't going to work so well so you might need to split off part of the system if you've got another part of the system which has a very different set of flow needs if you like so you might end up with two different software systems that's fine but you've done the model you've done the understanding with the domain experts to enable you to align teams to the flow so it's, it's great we've got things like DDD and Flow Framework and things now to help us do that, which you know, kind of weren't so, well, either weren't around or so well known a few years ago. So we're in a good position with this stuff, but it's still very unfamiliar for lots of organizations to think about it in these terms. Absolutely. I could not agree more. So just a final question. You've just written a great and impactful book. How do you find your own flow? So if each of you could tell me some of the key things that you've sort of adopted in terms of your own practices. That's a good question. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Manuel, you go first. So you mean in terms of consulting and... Your own work, your own flow, your own happiness and productivity. Well, like to say, it's always a struggle to when you try to apply it yourself, especially with kids and, and traveling. That's why um, I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> Well, first of all, clarity of, of my own business vision, if you like, like what are the, the really important things to me, not just work, but also family and, and try to set the right priorities so that helps a lot to align the work. And we have a, we're just talking, we have a Trello board with <laughs> hundreds of cards around things we could do around team topologies, but obviously we need to, to focus on what's really the highest priority. So I think in terms of the book and what we're doing, so we're right now with giving talks and first day of training around fundamentals around team topologies to kind of raise awareness and like Matthew was saying tell people here are some tools to think about Conway's law think about Dunbar's number start thinking of teams as the kind of the, the means of delivery rather than individuals aligned to value streams so I think at this stage we're focusing on raising awareness and then from next year we'll focus more on how can we help organizations with some kind of tooling, I don't mean necessarily software, but any help to actually apply these concepts and have kind of more deep dive training as well. That's my current, how I see my flow or my roadmap at the moment. <laughs> All right, Matthew? For my consulting business, effectively, I've got four value streams. Currently, three of them reflected on my website. Consulting, so I, I work hands-on alongside head of engineering and this kind of, this kind of role inside organizations, helping them to deliver stuff. Myself, I deliver training, but also work with other people to deliver training as well. And my company also publishes several books. I'm the author of one or two, but also involves some manuals, actually the editor for some of those books too. So that's the value stream. And they're kind of complementary, but somewhat separate. It's been interesting to kind of think about the relationship between those and, and how things are flowing through the different streams and so on. Makes sense to me. You're tracking yep. value streams to optimize the flow. So. Yep. All right, excellent. Well, thank you so much. Check out Team Topologies and great to see you and chat with you. Perfect. So, cheers, cheers man. Thank you to both Matthew and Manuel for taking the time to chat with me. I hope you'll agree that this was a highly insightful conversation. I hope it urges you to buy their book, Team Topologies. If you want to reach out to them, you can find them both on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn as well, or using the hashtag MakePlusOne or Project to Product. 
You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all of the proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.